sorry, I did stop up last night, mostly to watch the England game, although I think I drifted off to sleep for the last 20 minutes. Yeah, I fear that maybe the England team drifted off as well in the last 20 minutes, which is a shame. But we've still got a chance, haven't we? still got a chance. You've got to be positive about these things. Go for it again. In July... July 2009, Terry Herbert from Burntwood in Staffordshire was out with his metal detector on farmland near Brown Hills. There he is, Terry. What a hero. Terry was an amateur enthusiast who had been detecting for 18 years and was a member of the Blockswitch Research and Metal Detecting Club. But this day, this farmer's field. This find was going to be very special. Terry found and unearthed the largest ever haul of Anglo-Saxon gold in Britain with more than 1,500 items made of gold and silver and embedded with precious stones and, and jewels. It was by metal detecting standards extraordinary. The farmer, Fred Johnson, who owned the field where the hoard was found, he told BBC Midlands Today that Terry came in very excited and said, I have found a Saxon hoard. It's better than winning the lottery. I told him not to be so bloody daft. And I quote, <laughs> I quote there. But when, but when I went to have a look, I could see they were bringing up some really fantastic stuff, really incredible workmanship. Further to that, interview Dr. Kevin Leahy, who has been cataloguing the hoard, told BBC Radio Stoke that, I've been losing sleep over it. It's astonishing. The feeling of those archaeologists who've seen it is awe. The items dated back to around the 7th century and it's valued at over three and a quarter million pounds. The money they've decided is to be split between Mr Herbert, who found it, and Mr Johnson, the farmer who owns the field. And in my one-man effort to make metal detecting popular again, this stands as a remarkable example of why you should be all get yourself one of these. <laughs> a metal detector, although not this one, as we experienced last week from Toys R Us at £15, it's not going to find you three and a quarter million pounds of Saxon treasure. But we'll have a go. Let's turn it on. We're bleeping already. That's a good sign. There we go. Very quiet in here. Steady. We're not there yet. See, I've given the game away with this, and I'm very worried that somebody may have moved what I put in the soil. <laughs> but we'll go for it anyway. I'm not getting anything yet. What was that? Let's, uh, let's, let's get in a little closer. Yes, there we go. Let's have a dig. Yes, there's something coming to the surface. Let's uh, turn that off. Great, we're there. We're there. We've got a silver wristwatch. Look at that. Great. You're all going to be rushing out and buying metal detectors. That's what you're going to be doing. 
Lost and found, lost and found, we've all experienced it. And last week I made the splits between lost and found. And if you miss that, then they are different. The emotions we go through when we've lost something are often the complete opposite of the emotions we go through when we've found something. When we, when we lose something, there's, there's anxiety, there's frustration, how are we going to find it again? When we find something, there's, there's relief and there's excitement, we've got it. And last week we looked at lost and revealed a God, a God who is passionate and focused, almost to the point of carelessness in his searching for us. And a Bible, our Bible, that has a, re, a, a theme that runs right through it and tells the most incredible history of lost and found. Last week was lost, now this week is found. And there were three parables last week. Two of them we covered, the, the lost sheep and the, the lost coin. And the third one comes next with the lost son. When Jesus talked with parables, he created questions in people's minds, and he often didn't give them the answers, and that was deliberate. It meant that they were challenged, and it means that we're challenged now, every time we read a parable, to get the answer for our lives with where we're at and and what we're facing. The truth within the parable doesn't change, but the level to which it impacts us keeps increasing, as does the, the depth to which we can read it. And the parable of the lost son is one of the most incredible examples of this. As Jesus told this parable, he captured something about human behavior and God's heart and, and mission. That I think if you heard nothing else from Jesus, what you hear here in this parable could cause you to meet and know our God and to lead a a God-honoring life. It was also one of those parables that as you turn it, as you put yourself into the lives that are there, as you become each of the the three characters, you see it differently. You gain something new from what Jesus was saying. And this parable is so good, we could call it the mother of all parables, or more to the point, the daddy of all parables. And the three people, the, the three characters that make it up are firstly, the lost son, the the younger one. And he's most familiar to us. In fact, he's so dominant in the parable that it was named after him, the parable of the prodigal son, which can cause us to miss what can be learnt from the other two characters. And secondly, there is the older son, who is introduced later. And he becomes the most important as we look at living as found. Then thirdly, there is the father who... As we will see, he communicates God's heart and and God's mission. The parable comes in the the second half and the shorter half of the Bible in the New Testament. And it comes in Luke chapter 15 and it starts in verse 11. And Jesus' listeners for this were a, a gathering of what the writer calls tax collectors and sinners. And then on the edges of this gathering, but within hearing distance, were other people. They're called Pharisees and teachers of the law. And it was a a tense crowd with those who were attracted to to Jesus, both to follow and to criticize and attack him. And after the parables of the lost sheep and and the lost coin, Jesus continued and he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. 
Now that was decisive and arrogant from the younger son. The father would normally have divided up his estate on his death or on his retirement. But to have the younger son demanding it there and, and then then, that was offensive. It suggested that the son wanted his father gone. The younger son got what he wanted and he, he went off. He spent hard, he lived hard and he wound up feeding pods to pigs while he was starving. He was starving himself. And in that, he came to his senses and he headed back to the father, willing not to be a son, but a hired man. But while he was still a a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. The father ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he he kissed him. It's one of the most beautiful moments in Jesus' teaching, full of meaning. The son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, he said, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know, sometimes when I'm writing a a sermon in the week, I'm there with my my Bible open and I'm I'm staring at the screen. I'm thinking, if only you were all there, there and then, leaning over my shoulder, seeing what suddenly has come alive to me. because, Because in what we've just read, it is incredible. It is compassionate. It's grace, that undeserved forgiveness and, and love of God at its most powerful The father embraced the son, the son who wanted him dead, the son who had wasted his wealth, the son who stank of pigs. It was almost scandalous to Jesus' listeners who lived in a culture of of honour. There was no way in the world that the father should have done any of that. And yet Jesus was saying, this is the love that God has for his children, the love that he has for us. And that could have been it finish but Jesus had more and it's the more that's going to move us to to found because that was all about the lost son meanwhile Jesus said the older son the found son was out in the field and as he returns to the house he hears the music he hears the the dancing he hears from a, a servant that the fattened calf has been killed for the feast You can almost sense his anger rising. His younger brother, the the one that left him to work alone, that wasted his inheritance, was back. And this was the welcome he was getting. He was fiercely angry by the time he arrived and he refused to go in. And the father came out and pleaded with him. And then the older son, he vents it. He says, look, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fan calf for him. Again, the father speaks with compassion. He says, my son, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
that's where Jesus finishes. And you don't get, you don't get the older brother's reaction to what the father said. And that, I'm sure, is deliberate. Because it's up to us to decide in our lives as Christians, as found sons and daughters, as older brothers and sisters. Hide and seek. Hide and seek. It's a classic children's game. You know the idea, one person is on and their intent is to find all the others. Often a a time is agreed, a count of maybe 10 or 100, and then the others run off to find the best hiding places possible. And right at the last minute, I heard a a story on hide and seek, and it comes from China, and it made the news out there, so I'm going to go with it. A place called Fuzhou West Lake Park, and lake is important. Uh, A five-year-old boy, only five, he was found by police, weeping, really upset and he explained that he'd been playing hide and seek with his dad and it'd been going well one hiding one seeking one finding then the other one going off to hide again it'd been going well but obviously something had gone wrong which left this boy on his own and the police were with this boy so they set off searching for the dad and after 40 minutes the boy and the police they finally found his dad and they found him in the lake in the water, below the water, with a straw stretched out so he could breathe above the water. Now that's a challenge and both a warning to dads out there because I know there's something within us that wants to go next level with our children. (laughs) But just be careful. If you end up in a police station with your child, then something's probably gone wrong. I'm sure... I'm sure we can all think back to to being a a child and playing that game of hide and seek. You can probably recall some of the best hiding places that you ever found. And if you close your eyes now, you could put yourself back there, in the wardrobe, under the stairs, wrapped in a, a sheet, in the bread bin. Well, you may have thought about it when you were really small. And putting myself back there as the one who was hiding I can relive the excitement. And it was both in the not being found and the desire to be found. And you had to control that excitement, to keep your breathing shallow, so as not to alert whoever came looking for your hiding place. But you know what? All the tension, all the excitement, everything you ever enjoyed about playing hide and seek goes out of the game a couple of seconds after you've been found. Because it's over, the game is finished. And for us, if you're here, as many of us are here as Christians listening to this, then I think we can reach a place in our faith. In fact, we can be in it more often than we would like to be. Where we know that we were lost. And we've experienced the grace and the love of a God who searches and found us. But living as found, living as the older brother or sister, it isn't as easy or as exciting as we wanted it to be. The tension has gone out of the game. And we can be in danger of becoming lost, becoming lost within our foundness. And that's what I want to speak into. Using as characters the older brother and the the father, both were living as found, and using my experiences. And this isn't all new. It comes like it could have from many of us here as Christians who've been reading our our Bibles and have tried to live it out. And then through talking and and seeing things in others, we've looked to work what they've learnt into our lives. 
And there's a book, it's written by Bill Hybels, who leads a massive church out in the States and is one of the most influential Christian leaders of our time. It's called Making Life Work. But it isn't completely original to him. His best material comes from another book called the Book of Proverbs, which is in the Bible, in the Old Testament. It was written about 3,000 years previous. And I want to recommend both. And I'm sure you could order Highball's book from the, the welcome area or on Amazon. It's a great book. I have read it, but I haven't used it for what I'm going to say next. And there are these nine headlines that I'm going to go with, which have become important to me as I live as found. So you'll know because most of you in a second just did the calculation. They won't be long. And the first, the first one is live thankful. Live thankful. And you look around, don't you? You look around and the people that you're most attracted to are those who, despite what they've been through in life, they've kept their smile, their sense of fun. They're, they're still generous, still positive and encouraging. And I know this isn't the total answer, but I think a lot of that has got to do with living thankful. Just being ready in the small and in the big, in the delicate and the extravagant to say thank you. And that's one of the places where I think the older brother missed it. Because he didn't even realise all that the father had was his to be thankful about. He talked to himself as being a slave, for goodness sake. I talked about running last week with the aeroplane up in the sky and cutting across. And I was out again on Monday morning and looking over to, to Clint, I could see that there was a, a thunderstorm building. So I thought, bring it on. And I, I ran into it. And as I was running, I was praying and saying, God, you are incredible. The power in the storm, the refreshing in the rain. And thank you, God, for the fitness to be out here and the eyes to see it and the ears to, to hear it. It was an all-embracing experience. And I remembered a, a quote that I once read that said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and doesn't know who to thank. Certainly, certainly when it comes to creation, they're at a loss. And the Bible in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 16, and that's a difficult word to say, Thessalonians, goodness me, spell it out, Thessalonians, got it? It says, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now I don't live up to that, although I give it my best. And the easiest way to get started is with those simple words. Thank you. Thank you. Secondly, and connected, there are God clues. God clues. And I get these from creation, seeing God in that. But it's also about being alert to what God is doing constantly in our lives and in the lives of the people we're close to. There are God clues. They are there. And the more you're alert to them, the more you're going to see them in the day-to-day, -day, in, the, in the week to week, in the normality of our lives. This is knowing that God could show up at any time. Making a cup of tea for a friend, blowing up a, a tire on your child's bike. It's remarkable how God can connect things up. Some of the best conversations come under the most normal of circumstances. Thirdly, again, connected, it is 
living as called now, as called now. And how relevant it is here, I don't know. But I want to say one thing that can get communicated, and it shouldn't, is that the only meaningful calling is full-time Christian work. And I only say that because sometimes when I talk to people about what they do, they struggle to connect it with their faith and think that if they could get out, if they could join a Christian organisation, then God could really use them. And I see it as one of my responsibilities with, with preaching to inspire and wrestle through with you what it means to be out there in the workplace as a Christian. And when I say the workplace, I'm including that, the house, the playground, the everyday of family life. And you've got to keep me grounded in that because of what I do. I don't ever want to forget what it feels like, the challenges of being a Christian in the workplace. And we should all live as called now. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, it says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. That isn't for later, that is for us now. Where we are doing what we're doing. Maybe you don't see it yet, but be faithful in it and God, God will show his hand in it sooner or later. Fourthly, there is dealing with failure in a healthy way. And this came to me as an, of course, why didn't I see that sooner moment a while back? And I realised that this, Dealing with failure in a healthy way is one of the most important things that I can offer to my wife, to my children, to you as the church in which I serve. And I hope it doesn't sound too negative. It isn't meant to, because I think there's a lot of failure tied up in every success. And I'm aiming at success. But if we don't deal with the failures healthily, then when we're in them, they can twist us up on the inside. And it's those closest who are going to be affected the most. And there are some great quotes out there to back this up. Thomas Edison, the inventor of the light bulb, he said, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister in World War II, he said, success, success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. More controversially, Lance Armstrong, he said, pain is temporary, quitting lasts forever. And cheating, well, I didn't find a quote from him on that. Although, although I do tell my children that cheating ruins the game. And then finally, Steve Wright, he said, if at first you don't succeed, destroy all evidence that you tried. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how effective that is. Most of my failures are in front of people. And even changing the the language we use to something closer to Jesus can release us from this because he talked a lot more about life and creating life-giving experiences, whether successful or not. And then he taught through the results. And maybe this connection is about me because most of what I've learned about being a dad has been through getting it wrong, which started with the first nappy that I fitted and continues on most days up till now. But being Father's Day... And seeing the father's actions in this parable of the, the lost son, what can I learn? What can we learn, dads, about living as found from this? What do we want our children to gain from us, to even sense from us? Because children are very sensitive to mood and to atmosphere. Is it insecurity, the need to prove ourselves over and over? Or is it an 
assurance that we personally can deal with failure and that we can help them in their lives to deal with it. And then for us to be secure enough in God's love and grace to love them unconditionally, good grades or must try harder grades. Fifthly, know that transformation takes a long time, although this isn't going to be. When we're living as found and the Holy Spirit is living in us, his objective is to cause us to become the most Christ-like version of ourselves. It says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 that we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now for me, that takes a long time. Me and Christ, we started off a long way apart and in terms of me being in his likeness, we're closer but often still not on the same page. I've heard it said about marriage that the secret of success is to keep showing up. Now, I'm sure it's more than that, but that's the start of it. And when it comes to transformation, when it comes to Jesus and the Holy Spirit working in our lives, then the start of it is to keep showing up, to keep putting ourselves in front of God and then to be willing, be willing to be changed, be willing to be wrong, be willing to be offended, be willing to fail and be willing to keep putting yourself time and time again in front of God for a long time, for a lifetime. Connected to that, sixthly, is practicing God's presence. And again, it is short. And only to say, we often talk about our devotional time and that we struggle with it. And I want to encourage you, I'm sure we're all better at it than we give ourselves credit I hear Christians say that I'm no good at prayer, I'm no good at reading and understanding the Bible. But it's the same Holy Spirit that is inside of me, that is inside of you, that is inside of the the finest Bible teachers that you're ever going to listen to. Sure, there's a lot of knowledge and study that they've done. But those moments of inspiration and encouragement, those personal moments in God's words, that is what the Spirit gives us. And it's there for all of us. What we're often struggling with is managing our time so that it becomes a priority in the day. But that's different. Seventhly, investing into friendships. And let's not underestimate their significance. I think, as a follower of Jesus, our closest friendships are often put in place by God for his mission. And it's the Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings that speaks into this. And the first of three books which is called the fellowship of the rings there they are and this is an example whether you're into the film or not where hollywood has saved a word for us as christians that is priceless and the word is fellowship fellowship and it's rich with meaning and it goes beyond friendship to passion and and purpose for fellowship there were nine in all that, that gathered and set out from rivendell And they were a joining together of four hobbits, Frodo, Sam, Merry and Pippin, two men, Aragorn and Boromir, one wizard, Gandalf, one elf, Legolas, and one dwarf, Gimli. Now as you look around here, it isn't exactly that. We may not have hobbits, elves, dwarves and wizards, but we are all different from one another. And fellowship, fellowship is about doing life with difference, but together 
as Christians. It's where we have that passion for serving Christ that connects us. And we have that purpose. It isn't returning a ring to Mordor, although sometimes I think that may be easier. It is living out our faith. It is communicating this message of Jesus to a world that desperately needs it. And eighthly, eighthly, responding to the gospel. And if you're a Christian here, you may be thinking, I've already done that, I've responded, made that personal decision. And this isn't about being anxious that you may or may not be saved. If it's personal, if you're following Jesus, then you're saved. What it is about is being moved, constantly moved by what we call the gospel, the the good news about Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again so that we could be forgiven and be back in relationship with our God. He is living with the constant knowledge that we need Jesus. Not that we deserve it, not that we can earn it, but only because of grace. And every time we hear the gospel, the story of what Jesus did, we will want to become a Christian all over. And Jesus said as much with what he set in motion. When on the the night before he was betrayed, he opened up the, the meal that he was eating with his disciples called the Passover. And he took the, the bread and he, he took the wine and it would have been bigger, more impressive than this. And he, he made the connection. He made the connection to his body and to his blood. And that's what I want us to do now in response to this. Not that I've finished, I've got something more I want to say. But now if the service, they're going to take the The bread, they're going to take the juice and they're going to serve it out to you. One one final headline, which for me comes out of communion, is to keep one eye, one eye on eternity. And that's because what Jesus did there with the bread and the the wine, Jesus made a, a connection to his return. He said he'd drink it again. He'd drink it again, that fruit of the vine. He'd drink it again when he shares it with us in heaven. Not going to drink it until then, when he's with us, which is remarkable. And that's what our faith points to, the return, the, the return of the king and our return to our heavenly home, where our foundness will be finished. And that's important now because of what won't get finished in our lifetime. Because in giving ourselves to furthering God's kingdom, we are serving something, something sacrificially that will always be far bigger than us, that will go far beyond us. And keeping a, an eye to eternity is knowing that we have passed on what is of value to us as often as possible to those that are younger than us. And I've got this question, this question as I finish, and it doesn't seem that important, but it is. Does God, does God wear a wristwatch? I mean, I know God is spirit, so as much as we have to use physical terms to describe him, to help our understanding, God doesn't have a wrist to wear a wristwatch, even if he wanted one. But is he into time like we're into time? I think we want him to be. We want him to wear a wristwatch because as much as we get paranoid about the time, he is often seemingly unmoved. Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament is one of the most downbeat books in the Bible. 
In Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 8, it says, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A a time for war and a time for peace. When we were born, we were born into clock time. It started ticking. On our birth certificate, we had a date. It is measured by time. On our death certificate, we will have a date. It is measured by time. And between those two times, this poetry from Ecclesiastes comes into play. But what you've got to remember is that the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, as much as he knew God, he'd never met Jesus. And Jesus was God stepping into clock time, into our time. He had a wrist and a a body and lived with us and showed who God is. Our God, who is the maker and breaker of clock time. And I believe that God, God has a time when he wants to meet with each of us. And as much as it may not change what is measured in time on our birth and death certificate, it will change every moment of what is lived in between. And it will change where we spend eternity, that time that is outside of time. And that's the challenge I want to finish with. Do you know the God who holds eternity, not on his wrist, but in his hands? Let's stand, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing to finish. Lord Jesus, God, God, you hold our time, the time that we measure on our watches. You hold that in your hands. And Lord, if we've committed our lives to, to following you, then we give you again our time. Lord, we give you all of ourselves, Lord, our hopes, our dreams, our our passions, our desires. Lord, what we do with our hands in our workplace, Lord, what we do with our eyes, what we do with our minds, we give ourselves in our entirety to you. Our time is yours to serve you in clock time. Lord, we also know that you are the maker and breaker of time. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you. There is a time when you're going to meet with them. Lord, and if it's this time, I pray it would happen now in the name of Jesus. You'd show yourself to them, your presence, your grace, your love, your forgiveness. Lord, and we do look ahead to a day, a day where we'll see you face to face. And we'll throw the wristwatch away because it doesn't matter anymore. Because we're in eternity with our Lord and Saviour. We're in heaven with you. God, we look ahead to that. Lord, may we live with an eye to eternity. Knowing that all we do for you in advancing this kingdom is what matters in our lives. Lord, we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.